Hey guys, welcome back to Safe is Just a Podcast. We're doing episode four, talking about the recording techniques and the gear we use and different things relating to the recording process. And I also have Steve Sobchak here with us again from the Square Studio. Hey guys, good to be back. Good to have you back again. We're, uh, we're just going to get into some more questions and talk about some cool stuff relating to the process. And we actually use some other pretty cool gear for the recording of, of the other instruments like the guitars and stuff. Um, I think when we first tracked Safe It's Just a Shadow at Tom Denny's, we started with this head that someone built for me. His name is John Now, and he has a company called Now Engineering, spelled N-A-U Engineering. Amazing and, guy. Dude, his his stuff is amazing. He's like the amp guru in Rochester, and you know when, when a big band comes through and all their stuff is broken and nothing works at, at like the big arena they call this guy to come in and fix his stuff and he just flies flies over and fixes it up but he's awesome and he built me this head based on this wild fantasy that I, I could have anything that i wanted in this amp you know as long as it was analog so he built me this this 5150 type amp it was kind of like at the time it was a blend between a pv5150 and like a marshall uh jcm 800 or something like that and you know he knew i wanted that top end crunch and that sizzle and i wanted for some reason i wanted four channels <laughs> so he made me a clean channel he made me a, a dirty channel and then he made me two high gain channels and they were all controllable on this foot switch that we made out of a reverb tank um and it put like push buttons on it and whatnot and then he also put two effects loops in it. One of them was an effects loop for the entire amp, and the second effects loop was for usage with a noise gate, and it only applied to the distortion channels. Because I, I had been using, I think, a 5150, or it was 6505 at one point. And I, I found that when I went to the clean channel, if I had a noise gate on, it killed my clean signal. So I had to find a way to separate it. And he, you know, well, through his amazing skills and wiring, he just basically built this Frankenstein of, of an awesome amp idea. And we used that for the first for the first tracking with Tom Denny. And we actually did use it again for when we when we first tracked it with Steve. Right? Didn't we Yeah, we we used the the now amp for for the first safe is just a shadow. Yeah. And uh that was like the the main amp for all the rhythms that we used for every song. Um, yep. and then we used uh, Morrow, our our bass player now, but guitarist at the time, he had a fifty one fifty that he purchased from another local guy in another band that we used to play shows with, and was a good friend of ours. And this amp, we still swear to this day, this is like freakishly the best sounding fifty one fifty we've ever heard. It was uh, it was the signature, which I believe was the one after the block letter, and we used that one for all the leads. I remember having like a stack of heads next to us while we were playing and just swapping out speaker cables and and putting different stuff in the effects loops and you know, like back and forth and back and forth. But um, on, I think we also used a couple other amps, right? Didn't we use your orange head for clean or dirty That was stuff? for the cleans originally, yeah. And uh, I think in the... I think that was all we used on the first time around, but... I know on the second time around, we had graduated to the uh, the Soldano Hot Rod for our, our main rhythm sounds. 
for for this first i think the second save is just a shadow recording uh, the most recent one i should say since i did those guitars at my house we used another amp built by john by john now because we set up the tones there and did we reamp did we reamp the actual leads leads were reamped through the soldano yeah yeah that's right because we we reamped the leads to the soldano hot rod 50 with a dl mod factory mod or something right god that yeah the hot rod it's it's the hot rod 50 plus xl if we're getting specific that's right that's right yeah that that amp was awesome and that's been my go-to amp at steve studio since uh since that album or wait since uh since the predator since the predator yeah we've used that for every rhythm and some of the leads we've we've still jumped back and forth between the 5150 and uh <laughs> that's that hot rod is, is really sick i love that amp but I, I think the second time around when we did it at my house i used another amp that john now built for me which was basically almost a carbon copy of uh the, that 5150 that we had and i still have it to this day and i i love that amp it's it's just like the 5150 except it has two identical distortion channels because uh we actually used six strings and seven strings at the time and still do and I would like to dial in two tones that sounded very similar, but I could still control one of them for the lower content of the seven string to actually match the tones together with a, like a solo boost knob and stuff too. So that amp was the was the tone for the most recent Safe It's Just a Shadow. And I, I actually love that guitar tone. In yeah, I think it came out awesome. I mean, we've always been chasing this the, the very same type of guitar tone with with the the sizzle and the and the crunch on the top end and i think the distressor made a big made a big difference this time around it was one of the first uh first times track you know mixing guitars through a distressor and that uh you, you know we were you took my my final yeah thing and ran it through there right because we originally put a put put the compressor on the microphone that captured from the cab to just grab the pick attack and boost it up the beginning of each hit and then and then you went through the distressor after that yeah for for um you know for the the tracking it at your place we set one of your compressors up kind of how we always do with a really you know really slow attack and really fast release so that the you know the initial kind of pick attack of every you know every entrance and stuff jumps out a little bit um and you know, essentially, it actually stays the same, and then the compressor clamps down on the stuff afterwards. But either way, it kind of gives the effect of of the pick attack jumping out. Um, and then when it, when it got to me, it was just a little bit, you know, a little bit plasticky, like a little bit too forward. And so I ended up running it through the distressor on opto mode, and uh, you know, just trying to kind of like smooth the whole thing out. Um, I used one of the the distortion models on there, and uh, you know, it, it really just uh, really just kind of like seeded everything in a nice natural way while still keeping it aggressive. Yeah. Once we introduced the distressors to our, our recordings, it actually made quite, quite a difference in a lot of the different, the different takes that we would, would get. It's a really funny thing, the distressor, because when we were doing safe is just a shadow the first time around, uh, you know, we were kind of joking about it. It was a piece of gear that was just so far outside of our price range and, <laughs> you know, something we kind of lusted after. And we had, uh, you know, just always kind of been joking about it. And then as, as the, you know, the project as a whole started getting more successful, it was a, you know, a piece of gear that we, we just kept adding to the, 
to the arsenal. And I think between JD and I now, we have four of them. Um, yep. So we're always, we're always using them. And uh, those, are, those are kind of a key to, you know, definitely a key to snare drum sound, definitely a key to kick drum sound. Um, all the vocals were run through it. And, uh, you know, the guitars themselves were, uh, were run through some form of it as well. So I'd like to kind of add on to uh, the, the gear list here, what, what guitars we used and, and, and whatnot. With your first recording of Safe is Just a Shadow, uh, we were using a Music Man bass. Uh, there's the the typical Stingray. This one was actually an older one. I believe it was from the '80s, and that was one of John Now's um, one of John Now's basses that our bass player at the time, Shane, bought from him, and that helped kind of give that that really really common uh, Music Man Ernie Ball like buzz to the to the bass tone and high end kind of clank that we always wanted, and then it, it throughout our process of recording different albums, um, we've always kind of stuck with that until we got to the re-recording of Safe Just a Shadow, which is when we grabbed the uh, the Gibson Grabber, um, which was, I think, like I said before, it was the 70s or 80s or something like that. The first time I did Safe Just a Shadow with Tom Denny, uh, I used a guitar that I had from a company called J3. And it was kind of one of those new startup companies that was, was making guitars. And turns out i actually traded slash sold that to tom while i purchased one of his guitars that he used to use in a day to remember called uh, a, a pv hp signature select and i loved that guitar I, I i still have it it's one of my favorites i still bring it to life every once in a while every every couple tours it comes out as like a backup but i used that guitar in the studio with steve when we recorded safe is just a shadow for the first release and then I used it again, actually, for the final release on all the songs that had, you know, six-string tunings, like the drop D tuning or the drop C sharp tuning. And then for for both records, I used an Ibanez RG7321 or 7432, whichever one was like the $300 or $400 Ibanez. I bought that from this place called The House Guitars when I was a when I was in high school and it was my first seven string and <laughs> did Steve, didn't we have a hard time kind of dialing out that one high frequency? Oh, it was so awful because of the floating bridge on it. The, or the, uh, not floating bridge. What was the? It, it was a hardtail, but it had, it had like this weird squeak. Like every time I would, I would palm mute and it was and because, stop. but it was because it was because of the whammy bar. Like no, the, that, that guitar didn't have a whammy bar. It was, it was some weird resonant frequency in the high E string past the yeah the i remember bridge that. down into the body i thought it was like the i thought it was like the body just resonating from it was the... so weird but like every time we would we'd chug it'd be like and then i would stop chugging and it'd be like it was oh yeah it was awful it was so weird but you you know you couldn't really hear it in the mix once everything was was chopped up and stuff and i went through and hard gated it all out <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'll that'll do it um but i i use that guitar all the way through that record and the the newest Safe is Just a Shadow. Um, I think I had a pickup swap at the time. I think by the time we recorded the second time, I had I had uh, the Crunch Lab and the Liquifier in the in the pickups by uh, Demarzio, and that that was a total tone changer. I mean that that brought out the sharpness of the tone that I always wanted. Um, and I actually had those pickups in the PV as well. So that in combination with our 
choice of of tube heads really helped me kind of define the tone that I love to recreate in all of our projects. Another interesting fact about the guitars is that we used to do this thing that we called shit tracking, <laughs> which is which is when we took any guitar in any collection, it doesn't matter what it was, and we ran it through like the crappiest sounding distortion or took the amp and just you know dimed it to what to 10 and yeah we would do it with bass amps and just turn all like you know an ampeg v4 oh, or something it just, just sounded it, so awful turn every knob all the way up just the most <laughs> barbaric setting we could get and all that mattered was that it had you know a reasonable amount of distorted low end and we would we would set those under choruses and stuff so that when you know and we would pan them out wider than the rhythm guitars so that when choruses hit you would kind of get this looming big sort of feeling uh that you know coming through and that was always a, a fun technique oh so fun and they i remember just soloing them at certain times to be like oh this sounds so terrible <laughs> and it became a trick that we used on every album since then and yeah we call it shit tracking and sometimes it gets really ridiculous like running a guitar through like a really terrible terrible distortion pedal that has like the worst harmonic content and we used, uh, what was that, that orange Gretsch that you used to have? Yeah, 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 hollow body uh, historic series Gretsch. It was so unnecessary and so not part of our music, but I remember just <laughs> a chorus would come in and we'd, we'd wail in with the slide and just like hit the first chord and it was, it just didn't feel right, but it sounded so good once we put it in. Does that hurt your feelings that I talk about your, your orange Gretsch that way? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> that guitar is actually really awesome. Yeah, it's a sweet guitar. So another question from Capture the Kale is, how does this album compare to others like Every Trick in the Book and The Predator Becomes the Prey? I think from from a recording standpoint, e- each album has kind of been different in in our approach, but the goals have kind of always been the same. I think The Predator Becomes the Prey was the first record where we were comfortable with each other. You know, not everything had to be a huge experiment, but at the same time, we still were exploring what could work, how to get the biggest sounds. And, you know, that was that was another one where, like, live drums was a big concern of ours. You know, we spent weeks tracking and editing the drums. And The Predator Becomes the Prey was actually right in the middle of your switch to your new studio. Yeah, that was so, you know, I think seven of those songs were recorded at the old space and then three of them were recorded at the new space or eight of the ones were at the old space and three at the new yeah, space. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, a, it was definitely, definitely a, you know, still kind of in a figuring each other out type of, of place, but, you know, we were definitely more comfortable than we were when we started with, uh, with Safe is Just a Shadow the first time. And then, you know, moving on to, to every trick in the book, it, that was a, you know, kind of a completely different thing because even though, you know, we, we were using my studio and we had, you know, I, I had still had kind of an active role in producing it, uh, JD really headed up a lot of the engineering. He did, you know, all the guitars, he did the, the drum programming, you know, and I, I really just spent most of my time with Spencer tracking vocals and, and writing lyrics and, you know, doing that kind of thing. And so that, and that wasn't mixed by me either. So that has just kind of a different fingerprint on it that is, you know, kind of a departure from what we had done in the past. And then the, the Safe is Just a Shadow, the new version is kind of like 
a return to to form, so to speak, but in a way where we kind of knew what we were doing was going to be good. You know, we, we were confident in the methods that we had developed over the years and it was, it was comfortable to go back to that type of, you know, familiar process. I would agree, especially with, uh, you know, going through the first time and, and kind of solidifying like the sound that we wanted and, and still, trying to improve upon it, but also bring in some of the aspects of the the new references uh, of different bands that we wanted. It was really an interesting process going from record to record, seeing seeing the changes that we would go through, but also still trying to find a way to, to maintain that, that similar sound that we had as a band going forward. Yeah. And we were trying to, we were trying to take, you know, a lot of, we were making a lot of effort to not timestamp ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of trends in metal and, you know, you, you kind of have to employ some of them to even be taken seriously. But, you know, a lot of what we were doing was trying to, to make something that didn't sound decidedly 2010 or 2012 or 2015. Like we were trying to do something that would at the very least be able to stand on its own, you know, a couple of years from now and not, you know, not be an embarrassment to listen to, I guess. We were mostly concerned about trying to find where and how many we could, how many bass drops and reverse snares we could put in our songs. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was clearly the most important thing that needed to happen in, in the genre. Just kidding. We've spent more, more time on other things, but that was one of the big ones. Another question we got was from Lou Ann Rue. said, what do you like most about the recording process? And I think a lot of us will have different answers, but my favorite part is is the creativity. And uh, I mean, I mean, we've never really had that experience of going into the studio and just like actually being there for a long enough time to really explore the studio and and try really outlandish things and see if it develops into something cool. We've always had like a like a, a deadline that kept us in line that you know we still got to experiment a little bit but we never got to like you know run a, a a tape delay all the way around a room and run it through pencils and push on the tape and get it to do weird things you know like the beatles did back in back in the what was that like the 60s like we never got to do stuff like that but the actual process of being there and messing with tones and setting up drums and tuning stuff and and putting delays and reverbs and effects on guitar parts and just like, like really bringing the arrangements to life in a recording environment. That that's always been my favorite part. Um, I wouldn't say that like sitting there and chopping up drums and editing them and guitars and editing them into places is the, the fun part, but the actual recording of, of the instruments and, and setting up the tones is really, really exciting for me. And I actually, in addition to that, I really, I really love recording my screen parts I mean, I'm not really an angry person or an aggressive person, but I do have a lot of fun, you know, screaming my heart out with these lyrics and, and like, and, and challenging myself to, to explore new areas of, of as funny as it is, a, a, a scream, screaming environment for, for vocals. There's a lot of times where Steve and I will, will talk about a line and say, okay, well, how long should I hold it? And he'll just say, just, just hold it till forever. And I'll literally hold it for, I don't know, what was the longest one I did? Like 14 seconds or something ridiculous like that? I think we, I thought we got up into the 30s. <laughs> I don't know if I could get up in the 30s, but it was somewhere between 15 and 30. 
and it, it, it suffice to say it, it did get chopped to like probably eight seconds but <laughs> we get to have fun times like that in the studio but uh for me that that's the kind of stuff that i really love i love to be part of what about you steve i think one of the coolest parts about the recording process is just figuring out you know how to make four or five different people's vision come together in a way that is you know impactful and you know cohesive and things like that i, I think I'm a big fan of kind of committing to directions as we go. And, you know, if we're, if we're starting with the drums, for instance, like I, I would like to have almost a finished drum sound before we start putting bass on or guitars on, because I like to know what I'm building. And, you know, I, I think it forces all of us to make more inspired choices if we, you know, if we commit to different creative things. But I think it's really cool to take in, you know, in the case of Ice Nine Kills, to take in four other people's, you know, oftentimes contrasting visions on something and try to kind of mediate and discuss and figure out what, what the best representation of those, those differing viewpoints are going to be and, and try to make it synergistic instead of competitive. And those sorts of things, I mean, it always feels like a victory to listen to an album where everybody got their say. And, you know, there's a, you know, whoever wrote a cool guitar lick when that part comes up, you know, they feel great about it. And, whoever wrote the the chorus line feels awesome about that. And, um, you know, I think just that kind of collaboration where nobody's idea is more important than anybody else's idea. And the, you know, everybody gets heard to, to just kind of make like the, the, a thing that everyone in the room is proud of is, is just an awesome part of the process. So another question from Max Kliegel is what kind of sound equipment did you use for the music to sound heavy? Well, well, that's yeah. easy. We use the uh, the heavy plugin and turn the knob all the all way up. All the way up, and it goes to eleven, actually. No, but in all seriousness, um, it's kind of it, it. It all builds on on the basic parts of the recording, where your your arrangements and your writing have to really have those impactful points for for things to actually start to sound heavy. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to take a, a Willie Nelson song and mix it heavy. It just, it just doesn't really work that way. But for us, you know, it's all about those, like, or I should say in metal, metal is really about the buildup and the setup and release of energy. You're accurate in saying that. I, I think basically what it comes down to is that every instrument has a, a really important identifying range. And it, it also extends far beyond that in its natural state. So, you know, a guitar cabinet, like speaker cabinet, when you're, when you're chugging and doing palm muting stuff, like that can be outputting 50 hertz, 60 hertz, and it's really just resonance from the cabinet. It has no musical value in a lot of cases. And in the same sense, like that super high hiss and sizzle on, you know, coming out of a really high gain amp may not have a lot of musical relevance either. So you kind of just are always like trying to refine the important speaking range of each instrument and, and, you know, making sure that they're, they're a contributor to the sandwich, so to speak. Yeah, so it's 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 really not easy to describe, and it's it's actually a really hard thing to learn. You know, the 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 skill level it takes to really grasp that concept is 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 very vast, and and you don't just learn it overnight. 
we're still both working on it. Steve's much better than I am because he mixes the records and makes them sound cool. Whereas I just kind of have these ideas of, of what things should sound like. And I kind of speak my terms to him. And he's like, yeah, I know what you mean. It's the blah, 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 60, 20, 30 hertz, blah, 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 boost cut. You know, I think making heavy records, it's all about just kind of abusing technique but but not doing it just for the sake of abusing it like you 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 know the rules and know enough about the rules you know to know when to break them and i think like a really aggressive use of compression is kind of a staple in metal music you know heavy limiting even clipping sometimes um can can really make a sound more forceful and more consistent um you know these are things like you would never do in a folk mix or something that you wanted to be dynamic really in any way uh but the whole point is just to kind of push push the limits of what your processors can do and you know see if it lands you in a cool territory but i think it like what you were talking about jd with the you know making sure everything has its own place in the frequency spectrum, its own speaking range. That is super important and a very traditional approach to mixing almost any type of music. But where it gets really crazy is once you start working with these like extremely aggressive wall of sound types of sounds and you build up mixes of a hundred plus tracks of them, you know, not everything can sound like a huge full spectrum thing. Stuff needs to be smaller in order to fit. So it oftentimes is like goes against intuition because if you solo, you know, a, a guitar lead or you solo a background vocal or something, sometimes it can sound like it's coming through a telephone soloed, but you know, that information inside of a mix, you know, is implied and it, it sounds full when it's played with everything. So sometimes it's counterintuitive, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, what sounds good is good. So, uh, I think it all, it all relates back to the first save is just a shadow as well and even the second just because it's it's like a you know a copy but we when we wrote those parts for the for the the songs like there's some stuff that you just don't even hear like you don't know it's there and that that went across a lot of our records and over time there's been a little bit less of that as we've learned that you know when we write a, a guitar part and then we put two or three opposing leads on top of it that you just don't hear that stuff at the end of the day. And, and and you can't continue to fight to have everything be louder than everything else because eventually you're just creating a wall of sound that is a little bit colored, but it's not colored enough in a flattering way where you can pick out every individual thing. And there's only so much mixing you can do before it just sounds like three guitar parts are just playing one guitar part that has constant ringing notes around it. You know, it, it, it can get very complicated and... When we did Save Which Is a Shadow, some of the choruses had like three guitar parts or they had three guitar parts and a synth part or, uh, you know, there'd be like woes from the vocals on top of or underneath two two vocal lines that are harmonized with each other during the entire chorus while there's two guitar parts underneath and then rhythm guitars. You know, it, it's just like this this sandwich that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. There's, you know, there's only so much you can do in a song and, and you know, over time we learned that Sometimes less is more, especially if you want to create that that heaviness that that Max was asking us about. Well, yeah, because each each element can be bigger when there's less elements. You know, if your mix is just kick drum and guitar, like your kick drum can sound huge and your guitar can sound huge. None of those have to sacrifice anything because they're not really in competing ranges. But when you have, you know, as you said, like you know, background vocals, lead vocals guitar lead, rhythm guitar, piano, synth, 
you know, and in various drama set information, uh, all competing in the same musical octave, it's, it, you know, some, something's got to be cut there and in kind of forced into a different, you know, range in the frequency spectrum to have a, a voice in the mix. And so a lot of times you end up with a lot of really small sounding, kind of unnatural sounding when soloed elements that just all piece together to work to make a, you know, a cohesive mix. Okay, so we have another question. I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but Caleb Pereira Schmitz wants to know what was the hardest part of the recordings. Well, there's a there's a million things we can say because during the process we went through so much to actually make the record. We've talked about this a little bit too on the previous podcasts, but as far as like the actual recording process, there were some real real challenges. Um, with the drums, Steve, tell them about the time that you made the drums on the first time around with the China and the tricks you used to actually bring that out and the actual problem that we had. <laughs> yeah, so we, on the first time around, we we used a regular left and right overhead mic for, you know, the stereo image of the kit. And then we had spot mics just on the ride cymbal and the hi-hat, which is a fairly standard setup. Um and the China symbol in the room was so loud that nobody thought at the time we would need to do anything to, you know, be able to have more independent control over it. So when it got to mix time, you know, everybody just wanted more China symbol. And uh, it was tough to do because there was so much, um, you know, drum information in the overheads that if if you were to bring up the overheads to make the China the right level, the you know, the, the other information in the overhead, such as the snare sound would just, would just kind of go to crap. It would distort all the balances that we'd worked for. So, uh, one of the things that I did was a, a technique that involved side chaining, which is, uh, when you use, uh, a, a key input such as the snare drum to control compression that's happening on a different source. So essentially in the overheads, I would compress this, the, snare signal as triggered by the snare sound itself so that every time the snare hit it would be reduced by a significant amount of decibels and what that allowed me to do was increase the volume of the you know the right side overhead with that had the china in it in order to be able to you know get the china up to a more audible place without distorting the balance that i wanted of you know overhead snare sound to close mic snare sound and it was a, you know, again, it was one of those weird things. Like if I had it to do over again, I would have much rather put a mic on the China symbol, which is what we did the second time around. And ultimately every record that I've recorded since that had a China symbol got a mic on it. But um, <laughs> yeah, we always make sure like Steve is the, uh, is the mic on the China this time? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we put 10 mics on the China because, you know, you, sometimes you just need more China or more mini China is, is also a very common problem. So, uh, I think I, I think our China mic symbol mic count now outnumbers our actual drums. So, <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of tracks, uh, Steve, how many how many tracks do we typically have across a samplitude session? Steve uses samplitude, by the way, which is uh, Magic's, right? Yeah, it's an amazing program. I would highly recommend it. Um, but in any case, I, I think as far as track count goes, we're usually you know, we're usually a, a low track count would be. 90 tracks or something and a high track count would be 120 or 130 it's it's really it's really crazy because almost no other records that i've ever made have had nearly as high of track counts this is including buses and and like like uh 
all group tracks and stuff like that. Yeah, and we use multiple mics on single sources. So sometimes we'll have, you know, a ribbon mic like a Royer 121 on on a guitar as well as a dynamic mic. And so, you know, it's really only recording one thing, but it's two six, you know, two tracks. Um so it's it's not like there's 120 individual things contributing, but uh, it's definitely a lot of tracks, and uh, definitely makes mixing it quite a interesting endeavor. Do you remember what we used on on the guitars the first time around, cab wise? We didn't we use a 412? Yeah, so we used a Mesa Boogie 412 um, that had two Soldano Eminence speakers in there and two Vintage 30s in there. And we used uh, Bayer Dynamic M160s, which are a cardioid uh, ribbon mic, and we you know, we mic'd one of each of the speaker speaker sets. So it's kind of a unique approach. And the second time around, we used uh, we used a Black Market 212 cab, which was modeled after uh, a typical rectifier 212 made by Mesa Boogie, um, and. The, what did we use for a mic on that? Didn't we just throw it was, 157 Yeah, it was a 57 on it? on it the second time around. Would you say it was perpendicular to the actual cone of the speaker? It was right on the cone, you know, pointed straight at the center of the speaker. I would say it was cl- probably six inches away from the from the the speaker. And, uh, you know, it was just a really simple kind of foolproof setup that we knew would work. And, you know, since I wasn't there to monitor what was going on, I wanted to make sure JD had a setup that, you know, would guarantee usable results at the end. Yep. We did that at my parents' house in a spare room, spare bedroom. <laughs> and I think also one of the things you learn the more time you spend recording music is that oftentimes the simplest path is the best. And that definitely proved true with the the guitar tone in in this most recent pass at the album. So let's talk a little bit about the the vocal process. You know, a lot of people ask questions regarding you know what mics do you use or what's in the typical vocal chain you know what kind of plugins do you like to use and i know that over over time we've used various different things but let's start just back from when we did the first save is just a shadow so with the, with the first save is just a shadow it, it was it was kind of weird um you know we had two vocalists and we were doing two different processes for both of their voices because dave had kind of a you know a higher and you know more mid-rangey kind of present voice and then Spencer had you know kind of a darker voice at the time and so we were you know we had a bunch of different mics to choose from but we ended up using a a blue mouse microphone on Spencer because it kind of gave him the presence boost that he needed to be articulate and um and I think it worked pretty well for him and on Dave we were using a Audio Technica 4033 which was a you know kind of a mid-range condenser mic that it just kind of did the job. Um, I don't think we did any analog compression on the way in because at that time we just didn't have the resources to do it. But uh, as far as the chain was when we were, once we got it into the computer, we definitely did some significant compression um, and, you know, various effects as far as like reverb and delays go on a per part basis. Uh, Did you have your your Chandler preamps at that point? I did not. That was a, a acquisition that we started using on the Predator, um, and those were really a game changer for me as far as stepping up the you know the preamp and the chain. the The Chandler equipment is some of the best stuff I've ever used. I love those preamps, and you know they're just an amazing, amazing product. 
So on the new safe is just a shadow. Um, we we did a, a lot of stuff pretty different from from the original. We over the years doing all the records, we kind of learned a lot about what worked and acquired a lot of different gear and and figured out a mic that worked really well on Spencer's voice was the the Blue Bottle Rocket Stage Two. It's a tube mic that has uh, interchangeable capsules, so you can you can kind of change the frequency response of the mic as you go. And the the cap that we settled on was the B Zero cap, which is supposed to kind of reference the old Telefunken mics and, you know, great tube mics of, of, of yesterday. So uh, we used that for everything this time around, and I was really pleased with the, the result. We tracked him in through a uh, distressor on the way in, um, and I, I think on that it was, you know, pretty aggressive. We did a probably a 6-to-1 ratio. Um, we had a pretty fast attack, pretty fast release, just trying to, to just flatten it into a place where it was already going to sound pretty consistent. Um, and then, you know, I used the, uh, the Chandler preamps again for, for his, his vocal chain and it all, you know, it all came together in a, in a really nice way. I, I also feel like Spencer just increased his ability as a vocalist so much over the, you know, the seven year span between doing it the first time and the second time that even just the tonal quality of his voice to start with was in a better place. So what about the screams? I know we did we did different things over the years with scream stuff. Yeah, so you know you you always liked the uh, Sennheiser four twenty one for your for your screaming stuff. That's right. Um, and I know we used that on the original Safe is Just a Shadow. I've always preferred dynamic mics for screaming just because the the breakup is a little bit nicer and you know it's just kind of a little bit more punk rock sounding. And um, I know for Spencer, he's always used the Sure SM seven B. Um, you know, the good news is that these are really pretty affordable microphones and they sound great across a ton of different varieties of vocals. Um, so, you know, those are always kind of a good choice, I think, for people trying to get into, you know, into recording heavy vocals. Yeah. And actually over time, I, I switched over to the SM7. Um, I remember being down in Florida with Tom Denny and trying the SM7, um, for the first time for the screams. And, and at the time I didn't actually like it. I, I was doing it handheld and I've always screamed in front of a mic because I've always had a guitar on me. So I've, I've always screamed in front of a mic on a stand, I should say, because I've always been playing guitar and I never had my hands on the mic. So it, it was, uh, it was a little weird, you know, I mean, I probably had like my leg up and I was doing like the, the lead singer thing and, and I didn't get the takes that I wanted. I didn't feel weird or I didn't feel right about it. So I, I did stay with that 421 for the first record and then when we started doing things like uh, the Predator EP, I think that was also on the 421. And somewhere between then and the Predator becomes the Prey, the full the full length. Um, somewhere between there and the covers that we did, I switched over to the SM7 yep. at your studio, and, and I I did like it. And and so I actually picked up one of those myself. Like Steve said, it's pretty affordable. Um, when you're looking for a nice mic to to do even singing and screaming, I mean the SM7B was that was the mic that uh, All American Rejects recorded an entire vocal performance record. Yeah, I mean that's what, been on countless what, famous. Yeah, Michael Jackson's hits were SM7s. So yeah, I mean these these mics are, are awesome, and I I started using it for my my screen patterns and my screen recordings and stuff, and I recorded my screams myself for the new save it's just a shadow here at my home and i used an sm7 i ran it through a distressor you know i basically just took the chain that steve was using at his house 
or at his studio rather, and kind of developed a system that I could do that with here. And yeah, I, I love the SM7. It's been great since, and I recommend it to tons of people when they when they are looking for a great dynamic microphone for vocals. Another interesting part of this recording process, um, which was actually in the writing, was my first uh, engagement with like sampling and electronic additions and using software to to create synth type instruments um i had experimented a little bit with it back when i was in remember tomorrow and at the time you know so many bands were out doing it like uh, chiodos had a lot of samples um various bands just were starting to get into the sampling world and and keyboards were popular bands had keyboard players doing synth lines and you know it was all over the place so i i had wanted to learn how to do that kind of stuff and I had first been experimenting with Fruity Loops, um, and then I, I kind of eventually moved over to Reason. Once I got through college and in my recording programs, uh, I had a guy named John Bellick set me up with Reason for the first time. And Reason was made by Propellerhead, I believe. Yeah. And... Um, it was very different because I was used to working on Pro Tools, and their their layout in their and the reason DAW is very, very different. So I, I got to experiment with that. You know, I was putting string parts in. I did. I programmed the string parts for People Under the Stairs. Um, other than the intro, I actually sketched out the intro in in Reason, and then Steve had real string players come in and and record that intro, um, kind of based on what I had originally written. But the sampling was was tricky because sometimes we would I would do something with a lead that had this really buzzy saw wave kind of sound and and it would then be on Steve to kind of find a way to fit that in you know and like we were talking about before where where when things get put into the mix and you isolate them they really don't sound the same as when you either originally create them or the way you hear them in the mix um I mean like Red Sky Warning and and uh Acceptance in the Waves those two songs have have what they call pads, which are like soaring kind of background atmospheric chord patterns that just kind of kind of swoop underneath everything else and and give this atmospheric emotion to the to the music. And and I use that same sample uh, or that same patch, I guess you could call it, across a, a few different songs throughout the album that just gave that like eerie but kind of background sound to to the to the to the song that add, added a, a really cool element to it and that was that was all new to me but you know throughout throughout the process i was kind of just testing out these different types of electronic sounds and where i could fit them in the mix and sometimes steve would have to carve them out to fit in the right place yeah it was i mean it was an interesting process with the samples the first time around because it was something that was at least I wasn't super familiar with it in, you know, my kind of like uh, metal and punk rock upbringing. It, wa- it wasn't like a, a very common thing until right around the time we started working on the Remember Tomorrow stuff. And um, it was just an interesting, interesting thing to to try to figure out how to fit these like very full range um you know, from the lowest of the low frequencies to the highest of the high frequencies type of sounds into a mix where they just couldn't eat up that much space. 
And I think what was really cool about the transformation of the band's use of samples over the years is we did kind of make a departure from these lead synth sounding kind of lines to more of like the the pad and atmosphere type of stuff that JD was talking about. Um, and the good thing about that is it, it provides contrast. You know, you have all these like very clean forward sounds, um, very dry sounds uh, in in the in the live instruments. You know, the guitar, the bass, the drums, and the vocals. And then when we got into some of the orchestral stuff and some of these. Um, you know, more kind of backgroundy pads. It, it provided a depth to the mix that you know wasn't necessarily so competitive with the you know the fast moving lead parts that were already there. But it did give kind of an element of of you know a three dimensional sense or something like that that was was definitely not there before. So that was one of the coolest things about redoing the album was being able to kind of try to push the samples into more of that type of place where it's a, you know, front to back contrast versus, you know, everything kind of being all on top of everything. I imagine it was a lot harder back then for you as well, because at the time when we put samples in, they weren't like a specific group of sounding samples. They weren't like like a type. They were scattered. They were just random different types of layers put into our music. You know, some of them were electronic. Some of them were were very synthy. Some of them were, were like, like I said, the atmospheric background chords just happening. And some of them were glitchy, you know, just, just like they're across the board. They were just kind of random. Whereas now with our music, there's more of a concise direction where say the orchestra is now being part, being put into our music as part of a, a like, like an actual theme. And it's, it's like connected throughout the different songs. Like you can, you can have this goal to to make our our extra instrumentation have a similar vibe across the entire thing, whereas on the original Safe is Just a Shadow and still some of the, the new stuff for the new Safe is Just a Shadow has a little bit more of a randomness to it. Yeah, I think I mean I think you guys, you know, through all the all the work that we did, I think you guys really found your sound. You know, you you figured out kind of the stuff that you thought was important and the stuff that really made the the songs, you know, that served the songs the best. So the, the, or, the addition of the orchestra, I think was cool on a lot of different levels because it, you know, it, it kind of put you in, in movie score territory. And I've always had that, you know, we've always kind of had that association of, uh, you know, kind of the the horror movie world and your band being something that lives kind of side by side and in a simultaneous way. And so I feel like that kind of was just like a logical step. Um, and I think, you know, I, I liked the variety of the original types of samples and, you know, kind of the off the walls nature of it. But at the same time, I, I don't feel like we were really super concerned with how they were serving the song. I think it was more part of like, this is trendy right now. Let's do this right. stuff. And that always isn't always the best reason to put things in. And I, I feel like as we've moved on, um, you know, and we've we've all kind of grown up and just figured out that we got to do stuff that we think is cool. Um, first and foremost, that, you know, the orchestra stuff really, really kind of lent itself to what you guys were trying to do and the, you know, the kind of grandiose type of uh, mixes that you you guys were always looking to put out. Yes, you, you heard it from the man. It's following the trends can be cool, but don't be afraid to be yourself. We're still working on it and Steve's helping us. Never. <laughs> So I want to say thanks to Steve for joining us for the third episode of Safe is Just a Podcast. It's been really cool having you, Steve. Absolutely. Thanks. It's been fun. So that concludes our Safe is Just a Podcast. We'll see you guys out there on the road.